Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and today we're going to try to answer a big question on everyone's mind. What more can I do in these final few weeks before the election? This podcast comes out on October 1st, exactly 33 days before the November 4th election. And when thinking about the election, it's critical to realize that it's already begun. Early voting is underway in half of the states in the country. Nearly a million people have already returned their ballots, all of which is good news and should inform what we do from here to pitch in and help. But before we get to our main topic and our special guest, I want to say something about this moment we're in in light of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the brazen and hypocritical effort to jam her replacement through the U.S. Senate. Um, after refusing to hear Obama's nominee because it was an election year. So this, the hypocrisy is just rank and infuriating and also can be kind of depressing, right? And just, you know, just the level of attack and assault on us is just relentless and it can really wear you down. So I just want to encourage you to take care of yourself and, and to give yourself the permission to do so. Oftentimes we feel like we have to always be going and continually in the fight and just not ever pause to tend to ourselves. And I, I want to give us all permission to do that, right? So Lisa Lehrer, one of the reporters at the New York Times, she did a whole piece recently on what she termed election stress disorder. And I just expand that out to call political stress disorder. I mean, the news since RBD's passing has been unrelentingly bad and overwhelming. And that sometimes you just need to take a break and get away from it for a while. I mean, I used to have a dinner time ritual of watching the news, right? Watch some of the financial news, then I would watch the you know, political news. Now I'm watching House Hunters International, right? There's no <laughs> encroaching fascism. You just have this, you know, person or couple trying to improve their life. And it's a, a welcome respite. And I used to like scroll Twitter on the regular. And I have these two lists I've created, if you do follow Twitter, of different reporters, politics, uh, and then a 2020 list. But it's like particularly something bad happens, it accentuates it because it's like one bad thing will happen and then you get 20 people commenting on it and it just becomes kind of overwhelming. So I've really pulled back from that. You know, and I can, you can dip your toe into the news by like going to the Washington Post, scanning what's happening. But I don't need every single detail of every single terrible thing that they're trying to accomplish. And, it, and it's really critical, I think, to tend to our mental and emotional well-being so we can be in this fight for our entire lives. But I remember reading this biography of Bobby Seale, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party. And I've never forgotten, it was almost 30 years ago I read this thing, when he was living in a commune. One night, actually, he just got up and walked out and was pretty much that out of the move because he wanted to live in a house of his own. Like the level of sacrifice that he had put himself through for so many different years was unsustainable. And so it's that sustainability piece that I think is critical for all of us. It's like when you're on an airplane, it comes on and says, right, you know, put your mask on first that you can help others. That's, uh, you can Google what an airplane is back in the days when we used to actually fly, right? So I just want to make that point as we head into this um, conversation um, to really give ourselves permission to do that. And so, right, another thing you can do for your mental health is to take intelligent and effective action, right? In that New York Times piece on the election stress disorder, she interviews the therapist who notes that, quote, anxiety makes you feel powerless, so stand up for what you believe, and that that's part of his recommendation for combating election stress disorder. And that's what we're going to discuss in today's episode, what you can do to stand up to the attacks that we're facing. And for that, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. 
Hi, Sherling. How are you doing? From your reports in our staff meetings, I believe you, you have a small person living with you who believes in standing up for what she believes. Is that correct? Yeah, all day, every day. <laughs> and she's getting a lot of practice living with us 24-7 in the pandemic to voice, <laughs> to express herself. Uh, we're overall doing all right. I think the bar is lower and different now in Northern California where yeah. we are, um, when we have fresh air, life is good. <laughs> Yes. So, and I'm glad that you mentioned this thing about um, election stress disorder, and we'll just call it ESD because let me tell you, that stuff is real. And I was so glad to hear that there's a name to it Mm -hmm. because I was getting caught up in the same things you were talking about. And I've just been working on being better about breaking this habit that is apparently quite hard to break. Like literally, I will re- I'll wake up and reach over for my phone, yeah. check it. You know, first I'll check if there's any work things, anything from you or the media contacting us. And, and then I just immediately go to the, the news sites and I basically start doom scrolling. Yeah. And it, it is so addictive and it, it's a habit. And there's something about it that part of my brain wants but then I feel awful afterwards. Yeah, I feel exactly. like so stressed. You know, it's like I'm still kind of not even fully awake. And the world seems, I kind of just want to go back to bed. It's like yeah. the, between politics and the environmental stuff. So what I really have been doing with my family is we've been getting out into nature. Specifically, we go to the beach. And it's made a huge difference because when you're jumping waves, especially with a little kid or building a sandcastle, you're just not thinking about politics. You're not yeah. thinking about the election. You're thinking yeah. about, you know, when's when's the next you know wave I can catch and Yeah. Yeah. So Susan and I went to Golden Gate Park yesterday. Um we just sat by the Stowe Lake, looked at the ducks and the geese, and it's just such a different reality. Yeah. So that's what I would highly recommend people if if you have the ability to. Nature is always a great antidote. But yeah, it's good for us to have a name to this thing, election stress disorder, because then we become aware of it and we can work together to combat it and do self-care. I just wanted to read a quick note from that Lisa Lair piece from the New York Times. In it, she says, describing this condition, feeling overwhelmed this election season, like really, really overwhelmed, you may be suffering from election stress disorder. Symptoms include obsessive refreshing of social media, check <laughs> reading news alerts to anyone who will listen check and having a deeply emotional reaction to swing state polling and i would add to that like you had mentioned that it really is an overarching political stress because for me it's also this compulsion to end up reading about trump related news but then having an immediate reaction like just the other day when the story came out that he only paid $750 in 2016, just that like made my whole body, you know, just cringe and I could just feel myself like welling up with anger and just also thinking about how much his core supporters just won't care because this guy could do pretty much anything and they would rationalize why he has the right and privilege and is entitled to do it. So having said all that, I do feel like today's episode is right on time because we're going to remind people, we're going to talk about the fact that we're about 30 days until election day. And we're going to talk about what more can we all be doing in these final few weeks before the election. And also, I think it would be good to talk about for our own mental health to remind one another about the really amazing work that's being done on the ground by people all across this country 
to maximize our chances of having a fair election and winning. And so to start us off, I, I did want to go back to what you mentioned before about the phenomenal RBG. And I wanted to briefly have you share your post that you had put on Facebook that you wrote after she died. And it put a lot of our current political challenges in perspective for me and many others. And I wanted to see if you'd be willing to just share a little bit of that with our listeners. Yeah, no, I, I want to, um, the sense of despair was so profound, you know, that I was experiencing, that everybody else was experiencing, they did want to try to speak to it and to also also put our current struggles in the much bigger context, right, of a longer-term struggle for justice and equality. And I do think in that context, things look more hopeful. So here's some of what I, what I wrote. This is a profoundly clarifying moment about the nature of the fight we are in, indeed about the nature of the nation we are in. You see, this is still a nation fighting a civil war, but only one side realizes that that is what's happening. Democrats believe we're all one nation, bound by common laws, traditions, and rules. Republicans believe none of that, especially since Trump got elected, highlighting the political power of the 40% of the country who's essentially mad they lost the civil war and do not like America's changing culture and diversity. And so while Democrats worry about precedent, our institutions and societal norms, Republicans care only about power in using that power to hold back the tide of change in this country. The Constitution means nothing to them. The social contract couldn't be less important. So in a truth shall set you free fashion, the realization that we are not playing by the same set of rules should liberate our imaginations, strategies, and tactics. How many of us knew that Congress has previously altered the size of the Supreme Court seven times in U.S. history? If we flip the Senate, hold the House, and win the White House, it would mechanically be a very simple matter to expand the size of the court and have President Biden appoint at least four new justices. More broadly, if they don't believe in the value and values of this society, if they scoff at the current social contract, then we should feel free to draft a new social contract from scratch that is rooted in wildly different pro-people priorities. Universal voter registration, guaranteed basic income, net zero carbon emissions, a 2% wealth tax, universal health care, all should be part of the conversation about the kind of society we want to live in. And they should all be unapologetic components of a progressive agenda. So let's lament the loss of an amazing person in RBG. And then let's let the hypocritical, anti-democratic actions of the right wing open our eyes to two things, the true nature of the fight we are in and the enormous possibilities for building a more just, equal, and sustainable world if we start fighting the right fight. That's right. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, it's all about reminding one another that we're all just trying to fight the right fight and what that is what does that look like the right fight so i was moved by it i know a lot of people were when we read that and uh you mentioned some really good points and those are all things that we want to carry with us into this next month so speaking of next month now let's turn to what we can do in this relatively short window steve i know you've been spending the past week doing a lot of work analyzing the landscape of electoral activity and where the needs are and you've come up with a framework for thinking about where time and money can make the biggest difference in these next three weeks. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we tried to narrow it down to a manageable and targeted list of options. 
because it can get overwhelming with you know, like 20 different swing states, et cetera. You're given too many options for when to focus. It's like when I'm trying to find something to watch and I get these articles saying, top 50 movies on Netflix. That's, that's too much. I need your top five, right? So we've narrowed the list to four states and then even more specifically, 12 counties in those four states. And the states are Arizona, Georgia, Florida, and Pennsylvania. What is it about counties? Because I feel that most conversations around politics get stuck around states, right? right? I mean, that's how people tend to think is it's certain states that matter and that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, and this was really when we were trying to figure out, actually when the attacks on the post office began, when Trump was saying that, uh, you know, they're basically going to dismantle the post office to stop people from being able to vote by mail, which is just incredible anyway. <laughs> um, so we started looking at what you can do and trying to analyze the landscape. And that's what it really brought our attention back to the strategic significance of counties. And something that I kind of like knew, but it was not in front of uh, uh, top of mind, right? So their counties are a very important strategic place to focus for two reasons. So first, people of color, and by extension, Democratic voters, tend to be geographically concentrated. So it's more efficient to focus on those areas. And so Arizona, which is, I think, the you know, exhibit A for this, nearly two-thirds of the entire state population lives in one county, Maricopa County, where Phoenix is. Right? And Latinos are 30% of the people in that county. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because counties, because they have large concentrations of people of color, tend to be more progressive and pro-democracy. And the local election officials there usually want people to vote rather than spending their time and energy blocking people from voting. So these national and state level attacks from Republicans are trying to do everything possible to make it harder to vote. They're challenging everything, drop boxes, the hand in absentee balloting, counting ballots, so long as they're postmarked by election day. But it's the local election officials who are supportive of democracy who can blunt those efforts. And so, for example, in uh, Maricopa County, they've been doing early voting and vote by mail for over a decade, and they have it down to a science. So all of these attempts to undermine the democratic process are less effective when you look at a county piece. And so the county piece enabled us to then try to identify the states that have significant counties like that. And that's kind of how we arrived at that. And then on top of that, we overlaid on the battleground states, we looked at Time zones is one of the big risks, right, is Trump trying to claim victory election night before all the votes are in and then declare everything else as fraud. So we want to try to counter that by doing what we can to ensure that the early results are good for us. And then that can help to influence and shape the election night narrative. So three of those four states are in the eastern time zone. And then although Arizona is not Eastern time zone, they are so efficient and they count so fast that their results will come out fairly early overall in the night. And so that'll be a very important part of the national narrative to block what is, quite frankly, a contemplated and attempted uh, coup that this president would like to execute. When you had said counties tend to be more progressive, what do you mean by that? Because aren't there some counties that aren't progressive? Yes, but it's, so I think the Maricopa, Arizona is, a, is the perfect example. So Arizona has a Republican governor who is fairly conservative. It's been one of the leading anti-immigrant um, states in the country um, in terms of their statewide politics. But the county of Maricopa, where Phoenix is, is where most of the people are, and where most of the people of color are. So they have 
a progressive Latino local elected official. Phoenix has a Democratic mayor. And so these are like liberated zones within these more conservative states. And the right wing and conservative support is spread out across the state in these lower population, more conservative counties. And so the, that's where both the time resource efficiency of being able to just geographically get to everybody within that county, but also they are more progressive outpost within more conservative states sometimes. All right, th thanks so much for explaining that to me. Yeah, I definitely think that's something that many of us who feel like we follow political news pretty carefully, we just don't get that insight. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you don't get in regular news coverage. So thanks, and you were mentioning Maricopa County, and again, this is in Arizona, and what they are doing is really impressive. So I wanted to share this clip from a story produced by Vox Media on the efficiency of the Maricopa elections operation. We have gone to being a purple county. So with that comes intense scrutiny and oversight over the process. So we've established a lot of different procedures and protocols. And some of those are simple things as just making sure that voters have access to view our tabulation center on our 24-7, 365-day live video feed. So a voter can at any point in time see what's occurring within that tabulation center. We also make sure that all of our tabulation equipment is not connected to the internet. So we've taken uh, efforts to make sure that all the wiring within the tabulation center that go right from our central count tabulators to the servers is on display. Uh, we have our server room that's entirely glass. So a voter can see exactly what, um, where the server is and what wires are connected into the server. And again, the theme of this episode is what can people do to help in these next 30 or so days? So real briefly, what can they do to help? So what each of us has to offer are time and money. So in terms of money, people can contribute to the work of the key groups working in these states and counties. And then at this phase, because of all these obstacles that have been thrown up, a lot more people voting absentee, it's actually a very labor-intensive work to make sure people understand what the rules are, to help them be able to comply with them. And so there are key groups that are providing that labor to help people surmount the obstacles to voting. So in Arizona, there's a group, Arizona Wins. It's the umbrella coalition of two dozen groups, and they're coordinating efforts to contact 800,000 voters, mainly Latinos. And again, Clinton lost Arizona by just 90,000 votes. In Georgia, the New Georgia Project Action Fund, founded by Stacey Abrams back in 2014, is now run by Ense Ufat, is one of the anchor organizations doing voter mobilization in the key counties in Georgia. In Florida, New Florida Majority, run by Andrea Mercado, is a pillar of the electoral work there. And in Pennsylvania, there's a group called One Pennsylvania, which is targeting African-American voters, and Casa in Action, which is concentrating on Latino voters. There are actually 500,000 Latino voters in Pennsylvania, so state that Trump won by just 40,000 votes. We'll provide links on how to contribute to the groups in the show notes. So that's the money part of the equation. The other part is the volunteer energy and time. As my property law teacher, Joe Carrillo, would say, time is our most valuable asset of all. Yes, it is. And in terms of what people can do with their time, we have a very special guest today joining us, Crystal Ortiz of New co-strategies. Let's see if we can get her on the line. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Good. Thanks so much for joining us today, Crystal. 
we know how busy you are. So we really appreciate you being here. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here and <laughs> talk to y'all today about what we can do in this election. So Crystal, would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? Sure. Um, my name is Crystal Ortiz. I am a director at a consulting firm called NUCO Strategies, and I'm the director out of our Austin, Texas office. So NUCO is a strategic consulting firm uh, that helps a broad range of progressive clients achieve their goals. So basically, progressive organizations, campaigns, and institutions hire us to be thought partners, project managers, and sometimes just to expand capacity for their teams. You know, this field of strategic consulting, or the consulting class, as some people call it, has traditionally been dominated by older, whiter consultants. So our firm is majority women, majority Latina, and majority LGBTQ. So part of the reason we call ourselves NUCO is because we're taking a new approach to this work that centers the people and perspectives that are much more reflective of the Democratic Party. And also just a reminder to our listeners, we had NUCO's founder, Emmy Ruiz, with us on several episodes back. So you can go check that out on our list of episodes. Yeah, and I just want to put a finer point on that as well, that um, so much of the, actually, you know, people should go to check out the the report cards that Democracy and Color just did on Democratic Super PACs. And so we showed, again, as we showed in 2016, that virtually all of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent by Democratic consultants and Super PACs are controlled by a grouping, is controlled by whites in a party that is majority people of color. And not just that, it's people, often people don't have cultural competence in terms of how do you actually go about being effective in winning in a multiracial society. And so Emmy Ruiz and the whole NUCO team are a very welcome breath of fresh air in that regard. I mean, Emmy has this track record of winning elections, right? She ran Colorado, she ran Nevada, and the presidential cycle won those different elections, had extremely diverse teams on how to do that. NUCO has stepped onto a landscape where the actual power and control is in the shadows and under the radar, but still controlled largely by white men, certainly almost all by white people. And they have been able to come into this arena and play a very significant strategic role with lots of different organizations. I think they actually advised Hillary Clinton on some of her work in terms of her post-election piece. Uh, Emmy was very involved in uh, getting Tom Perez chosen as Democratic Party chair. So it's just been a delight to see this organization with this constellation of leaders come into the mix and provide the level of talent, insight, and skill to the progressive movement. I really want to congratulate you guys on what you've been able to accomplish so far. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, it truly has been a delight. I owe so much to Emmy for bringing me onto this team. And I, I think I would say there's truly been a hunger for it, right? We have been so excited to jump onto this landscape. You know, NUCO just started in February of 2019. So we're not even two years old. And, you know, we've had a lot of really exciting clients, like you said, working with uh, the Hillary Clinton team and, and others, because we really are helping to fill a gap in this landscape. Crystal, I just wanted to jump in and say, we like to shine a light every now and then on people. And it's a kind of section we call hidden figures, uh, letting people know about individuals who are doing critical work in politics that they might not get a chance to hear about. And we see you as one of those hidden figures, and we'd like to make you a little less hidden. So can you briefly tell us a little bit more about yourself in terms of uh, your background before you joined NUCO? Thank you so much. I'm 
Honored. Um, but yes, I'd, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about my background. So I'm originally from New York, um, although I have worked in electoral campaigns for long enough that I've sort of bounced around a lot in the last you know, five to 10 years. Um, I studied government and politics in college, and I graduated in, in 2015, just a, about a month after one of my personal heroes announced that she was going to run for president. So while many of my friends had jobs lined up after college, I was hustling to get an unpaid internship on the Clinton campaign. I started there in the late summer of 2015 as an unpaid intern. I was commuting four hours a day back and forth from my parents' house to headquarters in Brooklyn uh, while I bartended on the weekends to pay for my train tickets. And eventually I got hired and worked my way up sort of the campaign ladder. So started as an intern, I got hired as a field organizer, um, and by the end of the campaign, I was staffing one of the senior staffers on the campaign, so the chief analytics officer. And then just like the rest of us, I had my heart broken in 2016. <laughs> and I really turned to embrace the all politics is local mantra. So I managed a re-election campaign of a city councilor, Jan Devereaux, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and interestingly enough, Cambridge is one of the few municipalities in the country that practices ranked choice voting. So everything about the you know, city council race was new and exciting and challenging, even though I very quickly learned that having debates around you know, bike lanes and speed limits wasn't exactly my speed. <laughs> so in the 2018 midterms, I decided to go a little bit closer to the national scene again, and I worked on the EMILY's List Super PAC during, during that cycle. So I was running paid communications like mail, TV, radio, and digital ads for many of the women candidates who helped flip the house in 2018. Um, and that's where I first worked with Emmy Ruiz, uh, one of the co-founders of NUCO, who hired me pretty soon after I left Emily's List. And I've been at NUCO for uh, about a year and a half now. Great. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. I love to hear about people's journeys, especially in the political yeah. world, in um, the new American majority, especially this this generation, the younger generation, it's very inspiring. Yeah, no, I didn't realize you actually had the Cambridge experience. One of our one of my good friends and kind of political comrades, Rachel Weinstein, just got elected to the uh, the they have a different name for the school board there, but the the school commission there been active there. And uh, I also did not realize the bartending experience. We have to figure out how to avail ourselves of your expertise in that, in that <laughs> realm. Maybe one day when we are able to come and. Come together in person again. You can guide us in the, uh, over Zoom or on how to actually put together good drinks. <laughs> and it got me thinking about like AOC, that there's sort of cachet now in yeah. having bartending experience and then you just become really kick-ass in the political world. Yeah. So there's that. Crystal, I wanted to, uh, you know, again, just reminding our listeners that the theme of today's episode is helping people understand like what more can people do in these last final weeks before election day. And all of you are involved in some pretty important efforts. Can you talk about them and specifically let us know more about Swing Left's last weekend's campaign and Vote Forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I have the great fortune of working with both Swing Left and Vote Forward. Um, so I'll start with, so Swing Left is an organization that um, supports progressive candidates across the country. Um, and they're this year in 2020, you know, connecting volunteers with effective ways to help defeat Trump and the GOP. 
right? Um, so they're working in, I believe it's 12 states across the country that they call super states. So that includes the, the states you highlighted at the beginning of the episode, Steve, it's Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Um, and they are, you know, through this last weekend's campaign, I can say a little bit more about, they are connecting volunteers directly with campaigns uh, up and down the ballot in those states. And um, giving folks the opportunity to to volunteer directly and, and reach out to voters directly in those places. So what does that kind of volunteering look like? How would somebody get involved? Yeah, so mostly this year, because we're not doing uh, in-person voter contact or limited in-person voter contact, most of that is phone banking, um, so calling voters directly on their, their home or cell phones. And texting voters. So, you know, you get a list of folks that you need to contact and you send them a text message. A lot of times people get these text messages from campaigns or from the Democratic Party um, or from lots of different organizations. And what they don't realize is that it's actual human beings hitting send uh, a couple hundred or a thousand times um, to make sure that you're getting that that text message. And uh, so when you respond to them, it's usually a human being on the other end. That's amazing. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people think maybe it's just a, a, a like a computer and, uh, you know, some sort of program, but it's real people doing that real work. Can you tell us more about Vote Forward? Yeah, so Vote Forward is an organization that works to increase voter turnout by mailing people handwritten letters, encouraging them to vote. Uh, they specifically target low propensity voters. So voters we think uh, need an extra nudge or a, a reminder to get out to vote. And voters that are traditionally underrepresented in the electorate. So young voters and voters of color. And uh, this is one of the actions you can take through Swing Left's last weekend's campaign. So when you sign up to volunteer through Swing Left, you can write letters to voters as well as uh, text messaging and calling them directly. So how does like so for instance, um, so my wife just got finished with some major projects um, that she's been working on, and she says to me the other day, um, "I need something to do." Right? And so she says, "I might start contacting people around the election." Right? So how would somebody specifically? How do they get plugged in to these types of efforts? Yeah. So luckily, uh, Democracy in Color is a partner of. Vote Forward and the last weekends. So if you want a few different kinds of volunteering options, you can go to thelastweekends.org backslash democracy in color. And you can sign up to volunteer during the get out the vote period. So the last couple of weeks leading up to election day. If you want to specifically write letters, you can go to voteforward.org backslash democracy in color and sign up there. That's great. So another thing that um, I know has come up is in terms of trying to get enough people to be poll workers, particularly in this time of COVID, because historically poll workers tend to be older, and so it's not always safe for them. And so that I know a lot of places are struggling to fully staff up. And I think you guys have been involved in some of that work as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you're exactly right, Steve. So poll workers, for those who don't know, are the nice people who run the polling locations where you go to vote. They check you in. In some states, they check your ID. And they show you where to go to cast your ballot. And like you said, Steve, in most years, poll workers tend to be older folks. Uh, this year, older people are at a much higher risk of developing serious complications due to COVID. And so understandably, they haven't been signing up to be poll workers at the same rates. And because of that, in primaries earlier this year, we saw cities and states opening fewer polling locations. And, you know, we all know before even doing the research where those polling locations are being closed, right? They're being closed in black and brown communities and communities where it's a little bit harder to vote to begin with. 
Um, so we have been working with an organization called Power the Polls to recruit poll workers. Um, in some states, you can get paid to be a poll worker. In some states, it's purely volunteering. But you can go to powerthepolls.org and sign up to be a poll worker in your local area. Crystal, so I just want to jump in here and ask you a question, which is, as many of us know, Trump has already said he won't commit to accepting the election results. So he's not going to say either way what he'll do if and when he leaves and if and when he loses. So I wanted to ask you, what's happening to prepare for that contingency and how can people help? There's so much happening. But before I answer that, I'll just say the single best way to prevent this scenario is to win by a lot. The other side strategy is is based on the fact that they know they're outnumbered. If they know that if our people show up and vote, that the other side loses. But to get back to the question, we know that Trump has already said he won't commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And even though that feels new to us or to to folks who are following the news, there have been signs pointing to this eventuality and organizations across the progressive infrastructure that have been preparing for this since he was sworn into office in January of 2017. So my best piece of advice really is to get ready because it's entirely possible and maybe even likely. Um, But we, we won't really know what we need to do until that moment comes. So my recommendation is to find an organization you like, get on their email list, and stay tuned. Right now, there's a coalition called Protect the Results Coalition that has, um, I believe, well over 50 progressive organizations that are sort of coming together to prepare for this. And you can go to protecttheresults.com and sign up and get on their email list. So when the time comes, you can mobilize and go to a protest or call your local representatives or take whatever action it is that they're asking you to take because these folks have been thinking about this for a long time. And so based on whatever happens, they can activate you quickly. Yeah, and I would just also just remind ourselves, and I even somewhat forgotten myself as well. It was just in the year 2000 where we didn't know the results of the election for over a month and with uh, Bush v. Gore, which Gore actually won, and they threw out the votes uh, in, in uh, Florida. So it's not unprecedented. We shouldn't be shocked if we have uncertainty and unclarity. We have to continue to, uh, for one, orient ourselves mentally around it, but then really dig in to, in fact, protect the results along the lines of what, what Crystal was saying. And then lastly, I would just also like to just, you know, also add an offer that around this point of needing to win big, because that really is the single most important um, dimension here is that each of us can become kind of like a one-person get-out-the-vote operation, right? Make your own personal GOTV list, right? Family and friends, especially young people, first-time voters, or people voting absentee for the first time because of COVID, and then these different uh, these rules have changed. And then just make a checklist and keep going over it. Contact these folks. Have you gotten your absentee ballot? Are, are you registered to vote? Have you actually submitted your vote yet? And just keep following up with people to the point, frankly, of annoyance, because that's what is a lot of what uh, is involved in getting out the vote. And so make a list, you know, of 10, 20, 50 people who are in your family, friends, and circles, and then just continue to follow up with them um, over the next four weeks. That's one thing that each of us can do. Okay, so before we go, what we like to do, Crystal, at the end of a lot of our episodes, especially with our guests, is to check in with them with a kind of fun closing question. And today... We earlier talked about during this time, encouraging people to make sure that they take care of their mental health, try not to doom scroll all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that we got a big response on our social media 
is when we ask people for their favorite TV show or movie recommendations, especially during this time. So I was wondering if we can go around and just share one show that we've been enjoying recently. And should I start with you, Steve? Part of the reason I'm glad for us to do this is how resonant this is on social media when people raise these questions, right? Right. So I have uh, you know, friend Josie Mooney was a labor leader in San Francisco. And she puts on Facebook like, you know, a few weeks ago, she's like, you know, friends, we don't have anything to watch tonight. Uh, here are the shows I like. What do people suggest? She got like a hundred comments like in an hour and a half or something like that. So this is clearly something on people's minds. So I have one main show, but I do want to, I know I, a reference to this kind of odd thing I have with Nordic Noir, which I do think part of it is that it's almost like you literally go to a different place. And so it's a very different place. It doesn't have the, so if people are into that genre, I do have two specific recommendations. I mean, The Bridge, the original show of The Bridge is the kind of the classic piece. And there's another show called Trapped, which is another really compelling piece. But the one in terms of that I wanted to particularly recommend here is a show called Ted Lasso, which is on Apple Plus, And it's like, kind of the whitest show you can possibly imagine. And it's this guy who used to be, it's a half hour sitcom type thing. It's the guy who used to be a football coach in the U.S. and he gets chosen to coach a soccer team in England. And it's kind of this fish out of water type thing. But it's like, and as somebody who grew up in the Midwest, it's like these traditional Midwestern values, the earnestness, the genuineness, the just, it's like so like non-cynical and it, it's like an antidote to all of what we're actually seeing happen in this, in this time period. And it's actually quite um, well done as well. And so Susan and I are really enjoying that show, which is kind of, I would not have thought I would have been into it, but we were really enjoying it. And I commend it to people. Crystal, how about you? I love this question. I'm a little bit of a TV <laughs> junkie, a TV and movies junkie. Um, I will say before I answer the question, if you are still doom scrolling on Twitter, I highly recommend following an account called Campaign Healthy. It is doing the Lord's work of reminding organizers and campaign staffers to eat and drink water and oh do their gosh. laundry. Wow. <laughs> it's a nice, <laughs> refreshing uh, break in between the doom scrolling. But one show that it's going to sound like I'm jumping on the Emmys bandwagon, but I promise I watched it well before it won a bunch of Emmys. Uh, but one show that I recommend is Schitt's Creek. Mm. Um, it, it took me a little while to get into the first season, but you know, because of the pandemic, I've gone back and revisited a lot of shows that I tried to start watching back uh, you know, when life was normal, whatever that was or whenever that was <laughs> um but Shit's Creek is a wonderful show it's uh it's a really great show about you know family and inclusion and really just feeling like a fish out of water and adapting to your your circumstances and the char- characters are absolutely outrageous which I love yeah, I've definitely been hearing a lot about that show okay you're just kind of inspiring me to the time to check that out so for me and my family again because I have a little kid at home we often just have to watch what she also would be willing to watch or is appropriate for her. But we have found this wonderful series and its sequel that I highly recommend. It's Avatar, The Last Airbender. I know it's old, but I'm just watching it for the first time and it's perfect timing to watch it with my nine-year-old daughter. And now we're watching the sequel, The Legend of Korra. And I think the reason why, there are two reasons why it's been so satisfying one is even though these shows were you know, created by these white men, it is amazing what they've done in creating a world that is sort of based on a 
it's a fantasy version, but it's based on a world where it's all Asian characters or you know, a, you know, different types of Asian uh, tribes. And again, they take a lot of license because it's anime and it's fictional. So they've taken great license. But in terms of how the characters look and dress and feel, for my daughter, who is multiracial Asian, it's exciting for me, it's exciting for her to just be watching episode after episode where it's Asian characters, the heroes are young Asian people, and they're fighting the good fight against, you know, evil and people who are very greedy and abusing power. And so that gives me great satisfaction on some level in being able to watch them win the battles and uh, that metaphor for what I feel is happening in our actual real life in real time. And so for those of people who have never seen it, I also highly recommend those two series. Wow. And I actually had no idea about those. All right. So that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you, our special guest, Crystal Ortiz. You can learn more about NUCO at their website, nucostrategies.com. They have an excellent newsletter that's a roundup of important developments, and you, su you can subscribe to their newsletter at their site. And as long as you're getting on the latest and greatest email list, if you're not already on the Democracy in Color email list, you're missing out. And you can subscribe at democracyincolor.com. As a reminder, we will list where you can sign up to volunteer with Vote Forward as well as Swing Left in the show notes. We encourage you to sign up today. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. And as we talked in this episode about the strategic and heroic work taking place in key counties and strategic states, and we will leave you with an excerpt from the documentary, And She Could Be Next, that focuses on women of color in politics and features the work of Ense Ufat of New Georgia Project and what they're doing in Georgia. Until next time, keep the faith. And I will say that, you know, uh, Black people and immigrants and young people and women in Georgia, we know and understand our power. We are being attacked, right? So we are giving voice to the voiceless, right? Our people aren't voiceless, they are ignored, right? People aren't um, sitting on their hands and sort of, again, waiting for people from the coast uh, or folks from the Northeast to save us, right? We are looking for sort of co-conspirators and people who are willing to throw down with us, but we are very much active participants in building the progressive future. That's what folks should know about Georgia. That's what folks should know about organizing in the deep south.